So I want to talk about the invisible gardener objection to theology. Uh, you may have heard about it, you may not have. Let me just give you some quick background on it because it was very influential and uh, you still, it was in, in the middle of the 20th century and you still hear a lot about it these days, often in, in various forms in the online sphere of, of internet infidels and village atheists and others. So the idea comes back to a story that was originally told by a philosopher named John Wisdom in the middle of the 20th century. And then that story was retold in an essay called Theology and Falsification, uh, which was written up by then atheist Anthony Flew uh, and was published in a collection of essays in 1955 called New Essays in Philosophical Theology. I should just mention, I said then atheist, because Anthony Flew at the end of his life in about 2003 came out as a theist, not a Christian, uh, but a philosophical theist. He'd been converted to theism based upon arguments, which is kind of an interesting footnote to his story. Uh, nonetheless, in the 1950s, he was a young up and coming uh, philosopher, and he really made his name for himself over the next several decades of being uh, an atheist philosopher and most atheist philosophers in the middle, latter part of the 20th century were not engaged in philosophy of religion and metaphysics. Uh, rather, there was a lot of focus upon other areas, in particular philosophy of language, among analytic philosophers in particular. Uh, but a lot of skepticism about metaphysics and the prospect of metaphysics, in other words, our ability to describe reality, and of course, theology, and, and the philosophical theology and philosophy of religion is very much concerned with metaphysics. So the skepticism of metaphysics uh, carried on to a skepticism about philosophy of religion and the prospects of that field. Uh, some of this, uh, not to get on a tangent here, but really also came out of the, the, the logical positivism of the 1930s and 40s. So again, that laid the foundation for a new focus on language and the use of language in philosophy rather than uh, metaphysical or ontological claims. So New Essays in Philosophical Theology was published in 1955 at a time where there was a, a real uh, uh, scarcity of work in philosophy of religion and theology, philosophical theology. And uh, it was it represented a range of views, as I recall, and uh, Alistair McGrath and Basil or Basil Mitchell were the two editors of that collected volume who themselves were were Christian philosophers but of course not all con contributors to the book were Christians and uh, Anthony Flew certainly wasn't in so he took John Wisdom's story and it was a story which then became the foundation for this little essay theology and falsification and in the story it, it basically goes like this there are these two guys walking along in the in the jungle or the forest whatever let's say jungle, and then they come across a clearing in the jungle, and the one guy says, well, there's a gardener that tends this, this clearing and created it, and the other guy's skeptical. He says, I don't see any reason to think there's a gardener here at all, and so they both agree that they'll wait uh, for the gardener to show up, and of course, no gardener shows up, so then the first guy, he actually says, well, uh, actually, the, the gardener's invisible, so in fact, maybe he, he was here, and we just couldn't see him, and the second guy says, oh, really? Okay, well, then let's uh, set up an electric fence um, uh, to make sure 
that uh, we can keep out uh, or we can detect the gardener. We'll set up a fence around the perimeter of the clearing to make sure that we can detect a gardener if he comes. And in fact, we'll even uh, put dogs, like maybe bloodhounds around the perimeter to, to guard. And so they'll smell him even if they won't be able to see him. And so they agree and they do that and they wait and no invisible gardener shows up. And so then the first guy says, well, actually this invisible gardener he can pass through fences. And in fact, he also doesn't emit an odor, so he can't be smelled by the dogs. The second guy then at some point is just gonna throw up his hands and say, look, you wanna keep changing your theological claim about this Gardner hypothesis, fair enough. I can't ultimately falsify it, but at some point it just becomes a meaningless assertion or an empty assertion, it doesn't carry any water. And that, in Anthony Flew's uh, story borrowed from John Wisdom, is, is the predicament of theology and theological claims. That there, there are no bumpers or boundaries or limits to the way that you can develop a theological claim. And so as you develop evidence to falsify various claims about God or present evidence against them, well, you can always tweak your God hypothesis, just like you can tweak your gardener hypothesis and forever change it and thus never actually falsify it. And by doing that, you show that theology is really just an unfalsifiable endeavor and, and isn't really doing anything at all. Maybe like a Rube Goldberg machine or something. It just functions on its own, but doesn't actually accomplish anything. You can forever just change the hypothesis and there's no limits to the changes that you can make. So that was, was seen by some people as a sort of very provocative insight. And I've never thought that was the case. In fact, I think it's just uh, not a, a helpful illustration at all. And so I want to offer a brief rejoinder. Uh, Mount, the basic uh, framework of the rejoinder is going to be a tukokwe. So uh, what that means is that I'm going to respond and say that the objection that's raised against theology or, or theological hypotheses or theories in this context is something that can uh, be thrown up against any theory. Now, tukokwes sometimes can be along the lines of, um, they can be unhelpful because really what they end up saying is two wrongs don't make a right. So for example, if, if I say, um, you know, your, your, uh, your politician has been accused of sexual assault and then you, uh, so you shouldn't support him. And then you say, yeah, but your politician has been accused of sexual assault too. Um, now, now you might say, well, that doesn't change the fact that the first guy was, so maybe the other guy was too, but the Tukokwe could be just kind of a distraction. Maybe you shouldn't support either guy, but the fact that yours was as well doesn't mean that I shouldn't support mine because mine was. And if you follow what I just said there, which you may not have because it was a little bit garbled, I admit, uh, the basic point is that sometimes Tukokwe's are, uh, they don't really go to the heart of the issue. They can just be kind of a distraction, say, well, you too, buddy. But other times, Tukokwe's actually uh, get to the heart of the issue. And I think this is very much a case where it does. So when I point out that the same issues that pertain to theology pertain to other forms of philosophical inquiry, and in fact, generally, uh, pertain to other forms of theory making or explanation, then what I'm actually doing is diffusing the charge altogether against the philosophical theologian because I'm showing that it's simply a misbegotten charge at the outset.
Now, if you're still not clear on what I'm trying to say, um, it'll maybe help if I give you the specific example. So I'll do that now. So the main uh, competitor in the Western Academy among philosophers and academics to uh, theological or, or Western monotheistic theological claims, in other words, the claims that ultimate reality includes something that transcends nature uh, and that there is a divine mind behind that, the main alternative to that is often called naturalism. Now, naturalism and theism do not exhaust the options by any means, but they are the two main competitors uh, in philosophical discussions and debates. So naturalism is very much a, an attempt to provide a, an overarching theoretical explanation of everything. And where, whereas the theist says that there are, there are realities that transcend nature, uh, and here we can think about nature well, uh, I'll, I'll let you actually, we'll get into definitions in a minute. You can just kind of go with your, uh, your gut instinct as to what nature would refer to for the moment. So while, while the theist says there's something that transcends nature, the, the naturalist says, no, nature is just all that there is. <clears throat> okay, now, uh, with that in mind, let's rework uh, the jungle uh, story. And now we're going through the story and the believer is not the theist who's positing, you know, a parallel to the theist who's positing an invisible gardener. Rather, uh, the, the analog of that is the naturalist. So that you come into a garden clearing and now it's the naturalist who, uh, we'll put it, maybe I'll flip it around, say that the, um, you come into an area and it looks like it is a garden that's been tended. Uh, it looks like the hedges have been clipped. It's look, it looks like everything's growing in orderly rows. And the naturalist says, well, well, there is no gardener here, even though it looks for all intents and purposes, let's say like a proper English garden. He says, there is no gardener here. And so they, again, they both begin to look and say, well, let's look through the garden more closely. So then they begin to look through the garden and then they find a hedge which is uh, cut into the shape of Winston Churchill. Oh, well, that certainly would seem to be evidence that, that there is a gardener. But then the, the naturalist equivalent believer here, he says, uh, well, maybe there are hedges that can just grow into the shape of people. Okay, and then they begin to look and they continue to find as they go through this apparent garden clearing in the jungle, they continue to find evidence that there is a mind behind it, that, that it is a proper English garden and there is a gardener. But the first guy, the guy that believes there is no gardener, keeps revising and developing his story in order to account for any evidence that there is a gardener. You see how the, the story now goes in the exact opposite direction? Uh, that actually tells, in many respects, the story of naturalism. That naturalism, if you go, if you want to talk about theological claims that have developed over time, well, naturalist claims have equally developed over time, if not even more so. So, for example, uh, one early form of naturalism is a form that is often called materialism. Materialism, in some of its, its most basic forms, says everything that exists is just matter, uh, in a void. In fact, that was the view of Democritus, you know, the ancient pre-Socratic philosopher. He says, all that exists are atoms in the void, and atoms move around in the void and clump up into making objects like human beings and dogs and trees, uh, etc. 
uh, everything is made of atoms in the void and that's all that exists. And so that's materialism. Now, one of the problems is that materialism then faces some obvious objections. One big objection to materialism is that there is evidence of things that are not reducible to simply atoms in the void, such as consciousness. Uh, consciousness uh, appears to be something that is quite distinct ontologically from uh, physical objects. Consciousness does not have itself spatial extension, and it has unique qualities of experientiality, or what philosophers have sometimes called qualia. I don't know about experientiality, that's brutal. Uh, but qualia, so a quale is is an a experience of something that is non-reducible. You, know, you either have it or you don't. Like Wittgenstein famously asked, can you describe the taste of coffee to someone who has no experience of taste, right? It's very difficult because you have to experience certain things in order to really know them from the inside. And that's the nature of consciousness. As, as the atheist philosopher Colin McGinn memorably put it, how does soggy gray matter, that is our brains, produce technicolor phenomenology? Great question. So as a result, many um, naturalists who might have been inclined to think in terms of just atoms in the void have then amended their hypothesis and said, okay, well, maybe what exists is... Um, everything is either material or it supervenes on the material or it arises from it or emerges from the material. So you could have non-material things, but they're ultimately reduced to the material. And so maybe, for example, this is one view that's often called property dualism uh, or an emergent dualism uh, within philosophy of mind. You could have brains that produce consciousness and the consciousness is not reducible to the material brain states. It is ontologically distinct from it. So you can have things like sensations and emotions, uh, which are distinct from the uh, neural synapses from which they arise, but they're nonetheless dependent upon the neural synapses. Okay, so that's a new hypothesis. Now naturalism has changed. So it's no longer just matter in motion. It is now matter in motion with super, uh, particular non-material supervenient properties. But then you can go further and you can say, well, but, but uh, do we really know, uh, based upon our limited inquiry into nature, that ultimately a matter as a thing will exist? I mean, I was, I was talking, uh, uh, there's a, a gentleman at my church, who uh, Axel Hallin, who was on uh, a team that won the Nobel Prize in physics. Uh, he works at... Um, in Sudbury, Ontario, uh, studying, uh, I believe it's photons, uh, deep underneath the, the ground um, in the Canadian Shield. Anyway, so I was talking to, to Axel Hallin. As you can tell, I don't really have a, a solid grasp at all on what he does, because as I don't know how he, he can fit all the information he has into his brain. But one thing that uh, that he will he he was mentioning to me one day is 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 just how. Uh, little we understand about the nature of the universe. He was talking in particular about dark dark matter and, and how little we actually understand about what dark matter is. In some ways, you could call dark matter kind of a placeholder for something we know not what. And, and what you really get when, when you talk with a Nobel Prize winning physicist is a sense for, of epistemic humility, that there's so little that we understand about the nature of the world or the nature of matter itself. I mean, this is a question in... 
uh, physics. Is matter actually stuff or is everything for perhaps reducible to waves or fields rather than uh, discrete material properties? Uh, now, this is a problem for the naturalist who is already committed to saying everything is just atoms in the void. And so there are many naturalists then who kind of recognize this need for epistemic humility in any proper scientific method. And so they said, well, we understand so little about the nature of reality right now that we really shouldn't say, we're not in a position to say that all that exists is matter in the void. Rather, what we should do is tie naturalism to um, inquiry about the nature of the world itself. And what you do then is you really kind of tie naturalism to science, so scientism, to say, well, I'll say this, naturalism is ultimately whatever science describes as being the case. So in a hypothetically completed scientific account of the world, science would describe everything from quantum physics up to complex social interactions and the nature of morality and all these other things. It would explain all of it in one sweeping consilient explanation. And whatever science would end up describing, that is reality. That's what exists. And so that's another definition of, of naturalism is to describe everything in this broad sweep of reality. Here's a problem, however, with that. Um, um, well, I'll just say, first of all, so now naturalism has changed again, right? It started off with just matter. Oh, no, it's matter plus consciousness and any other emergent properties. Okay, it, it's actually whatever science describes as existing altogether. Now we have another question. Well, some people believe that science could identify evidence for God in principle. Richard Dawkins, ironically, of all people, believes that God is a testable hypothesis. Now, of course, Dawkins believes the evidence does not support that hypothesis, but in principle, it could, according to Dawkins, according to the position he takes. He's very different from someone else uh, who believes some other people have argued that uh, uh, Stephen Jay Gould, for example, argued that science and theology are non-overlapping magisteria. They're, they're completely two different areas. They don't overlap. So in principle, science could not develop any evidence for God. But, but if Dawkins is correct that it in principle could, then you could ultimately have God as part of the ultimate story of what naturalism has identified. In which case, naturalism now could change again and in principle be open to the existence of God and quote-unquote supernature as part of the ultimate description of all that exists. Now at this point, return to the garden in, in, the, in the jungle and we find that the, the skeptic who is now the person who doesn't accept naturalism is the one throwing up his hands or her hands saying, well, really, you can just keep redefining naturalism forever and it becomes equivalent to the invisible gardener. So that's the two coque. The argument is that just as, well, if theism is, is a hypothesis that is susceptible to ever more change, naturalism is as well and it's, it's no better or it's no different. Now, remember as well, I said Tukokwes can be kind of just saying, well, everybody's bad, right? Like your politician sexually harassed someone, mine did too, but then maybe we shouldn't vote for anyone, like they're all bad. And the point I want to say now is that, as I suggested earlier, sometimes Tukokwes can also show us actually the problem is with the assumption itself. And so that's what the one I, that's what I believe this Tukokwe is doing, that what it's doing is showing the real issue, the real problem here is with the assumption about the nature of theories. And so that brings us back 
to the theology and falsification uh, framework with which Antony Flew was working. He was assuming that for a theory to be valid, it must be falsifiable. And if you can revise the theory in light of apparent disconfirming data uh, and forever in principle do that, then that counts in principle against the viability of the theory as a legitimate theory. And I think that uh, Anthony Flew is just straight up wrong about that. I think it is in fact the case and I haven't read, a, I'm not well read, I'll be honest, in philosophy of science, but one individual that I've interacted with is Imri Lakatos, who um, developed some uh, views, which I think are, are, are better grounded. And I, I came to his work through the uh, philosopher and theologian, Nancy Murphy, in her work, I think it's Theology and Scientific Reasoning. It was, I think, based on her doctoral thesis. And so his, his view, I think, is much is more helpful than people like Thomas Kuhn or uh, some others who kind of developed a more anti-realist approach to theory construction in science, but nonetheless have a much uh, more nuanced view than is present in this essay, Theology and Falsification. And so what, what these people have argued is, is that you can always, uh, you have a core uh, claim in a theory, and you can always revise the penumbrial axial claims, so the supplementary claims to the theory that support and tie the theory to data. When data appears to disconfirm the theory, you can always revise aspects of the theory or these, these uh, secondary claims in order to retain the viability of the theory. And that's famously, for example, what um, uh, the Ptolemaic theory did for many years when it tried to argue that the earth is the fixed center of the universe and it, it developed, you know, kind of the, the metaphor that we often hear is that, well, the, uh, the cycles of the heavens, uh, epicycles were added in. So additional tweaks were added in to explain the movement of the planets and the sun and the moon relative to the earth. These epicycles were added in in order to retain the theory. And you can always add, tweak the theory to add epicycles, as it were, in order to continue with theory. Now, I'd like to give an illustration at this point. Uh, to think about what's going on here. Think about a theory as uh, analogically comparable to a car. So you have this car and you think it's a good car and you like driving your car and so you're driving it around and then something breaks on the car. Uh, let's say that um, you get, uh, you know, I don't know, your, your power steering pump goes. Well, that's not a big deal and you get your power steering pump fixed and you're back on the road. And then uh, your battery dies, so then you need to get that fixed. Not a big deal, and you keep going. And then, however, uh, maybe something goes, like you have a, a major transmission failure. You already blow a head gasket or something really significant. And now it's gonna be several thousand dollars, and you've gotta decide, is it worth fixing, or do I junk the car? And eventually, you know, most people, they're gonna come to a point where they're just gonna say the car's no longer fi worth fixing, and they're just gonna leave the car. But in principle, you could always keep fixing the car in perpetuity. And whatever broke on it, you could always fix it, tweak it, and keep it on the road forever, even though you may have poured a lot of money into it, uh, maybe much more than it's worth. And theories are like that. So when so-called falsification evidence arises, that would be a basis to reject the theory. You can decide that that evidence provides a basis to reject the theory and you can toss the theory, which is what Anthony Flew was suggesting. Or you could pull it into the shop and fix that power steering pump or fix the head gasket failure, get a new engine if you have to, 
and you could be back on the road. And in, per, in, in principle, you could keep a theory forever going in perpetuity. And that's true whether the, certainly in metaphysics and philosophy. So whether the theory is uh, the theory that there is a God, quite an invisible gardener, or whether the theory is that no naturalism is the ultimate truth, that everything is ultimately natural and there is no, uh, no gardener at all. In either case, you could keep tweaking that theory in perpetuity so long as you think that the new changes that you're making outweigh whatever costs you have to pay in order to make the changes. So uh, I think this is a lesson here for all of us that the invisible gardener was not in fact at all a, a serious intellectual objection to theology, theological method, theological theorizing. In fact, I think what the invisible gardener objection shows is that Anthony Flew didn't really understand, first of all, uh, how theories work and how they can be forever amended and changed in order to account for disconfirming data within an interpretive context, which is what a theory is. It's an interpretive framework for putative facts or for evidence or for data. Uh, and he also didn't understand the fact that his own views, including the predominant view of naturalism, which is certainly widely accepted among many atheists today, how that view is equally susceptible to quote unquote, the thought experiment of the invisible gardener as theological claims. And uh, so I think that there's a lot to learn from the invisible gardener, but one thing you don't learn is that there's anything wrong in particular with theology.